0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode in New Books in General History. My name is Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I am very excited to be here today with Dr. Neil Diamant, who is joining us to discuss his new book out with Cornell University Press this year, 2022, titled Useful Bullshit, Constitutions in Chinese Politics and Society. The book examines early constitutional conversations between citizens and officials in the People's Republic of China, primarily around the first draft constitution of 1954. Scholars have often argued that China has created these constitutions to enhance its domestic and international legitimacy by opening up constitution-making processes um, in ways that may or may not be actually legitimate to any of these audiences. In this book, uh, Dr. Diamant examines a wealth of sources looking at many different populations who are involved in these discussions to illuminate how the Chinese government and people at the time understand and made use of the constitution as a political document and what sorts of legacies that has brought us to today. So I'm really interested to have this conversation um, about Chinese constitutions and how they are thought about. So thank you very much for joining us.
2: Uh, Thanks for having me.
1: So you mentioned at the beginning of the book, and I think our audience would be really interested to know, how did you come to this research question and to write this book?
2: Yeah, this was a a rather roundabout process. Um, You know, the convention in political science, and this is certainly what what I learned, was that you sort of start a research project with a question. (laughs) Um, and proceed to figure out the methodology from that question and your data from that question. Um, But in the China field, this is pretty hard to do um, because many uh, questions can't be answered. Uh, The data is not available. Uh, The questions are too sensitive. Um, uh, There could be political danger um, to certain people if you go about asking questions that shouldn't be asked. Um, And so for this project, I don't think I had a specific question when I began, Um, but rather uh, over the years, I've developed general interests uh, in questions of legitimacy, uh, as you mentioned at the outset, um, how ordinary people interact with law, um, the interaction between government and officials uh, amongst each other. Um, These are questions that I pursued in my previous uh, books on the marriage law of 1950, uh, work on veterans. Um, but after my publication on, on, uh, on veterans called in Battled glory, I really did not have a, a specific project in mind. Um, and I thought about this for a while, looking at, um, how people reacted to getting vaccinated, uh, in the 1950s and sixties, sort of looking at this as a way of understanding legitimacy. Did people accept the jabs, uh, as a legitimate intervention, um, in their bodies? um but it turned out that uh, when i went to china on one occasion um, those sort of materials that gave sort of a qualitative understanding of how people um, understood the government understood this new medical regime of vaccinations they just weren't available Uh, most of the evidence was quantitative uh, how many people got vaccinated and so forth and so um after a bit of just sort of wandering around not doing much research wise um, I remembered a document that I came across while we're researching veterans. And it was a, a very simple, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, fact. Uh, and it was that during this discussion about the Constitution in 1954, veterans were not included. And I remember at the time thinking, I really don't know much about this constitutional discussion. I hadn't read about it. Uh, uh, I knew there was a constitution, but not that there was a month-long process about um, uh, about it uh, in the general public. And then when I uh, looked at uh, the secondary literature, uh, I found that law professors uh, in China and the United States hadn't writ- written much about it and was what was written uh, emphasized that as- aspect of legitimacy, uh, that the Constitution was promulg- promulgated to enhance domestic legitimacy. It was a way to ingratiate China into the sort of socialist legal world and that uh, from the people's perspective it was accepted as a sort of popular document. In other words it was done for purposes of legitimacy and it was accepted by the public um, as a sort of good legal document. Um, And so um, from that point on I started collecting all of these documents um, about The constitutional discussions. Uh, There was one in 54, uh, there was another in in 82, another in uh, 2012, 2013. Uh, And these struck me as a very interesting way of getting at legitimacy from a sort of different perspective, rather than asking people directly, do you think the government is legitimate? Uh, You can look at what they say about key documents. And one of those, of course, is the Constitution.
1: So that makes a lot of sense and is a great opening to the book. And I was wondering if you could follow up on that, talking a bit about the sort of methods and lens and frame that you use to analyze, especially this first constitution. What sort of lens and frame are you using? And how does this intersection of the legal and socio-historical analysis explain things that maybe we wouldn't get at otherwise?
2: Yeah, this was also a bit of a quandary uh, because what I teach students and what I learned as a student is that you begin with the question. You don't begin with the data and from the question um, and from the data try to derive a question. Uh, and so the basic question was, what sort of methodologies does the data allow me to use? Uh, and what was curious about these constitutional discussions was that much of the data consisted of questions, people asking questions about the document. Uh, They're asking these questions to officials who wrote these questions down. Uh, So, for example, um, if uh, there's an article in the Constitution about military service. Uh, People might ask, well, do women have to serve as well? And a lot of this data just consisted of questions and suggestions for revision. Uh, And so political science really doesn't offer a lot of leverage for data that consists of questions because we as researchers ask the questions and interviewees respond to the questions, right? They don't ask us questions. Um, And so there wasn't much leverage in political science um, or sociology of law uh, for this sort of data. And so what I did is I turned to other disciplines um, that spoke to this uh, this quandary. How do you deal with questions with data that consists mainly of questions? Uh, And so my first perspective was actually from literary theory. Uh, there's this really interesting book called Reading the Romance, um, uh, which is an analysis of romance novels um, conducted by the uh, by Janice Radway. Uh, she wanted to figure out what women actually think as they read romance novels. Uh, because from the perspective of literary theorists and critics, uh, these women were sort of asserting a traditional form of femininity. Uh, they were not the feminists. It was actually far from it. Uh, and a lot of these, uh, these arguments were made based on their reading of the text rather than looking at how readers themselves understood the text. So I thought this is a you know very interesting way to look at it because if I can look at, cons- at citizens as readers of constitutions, and officials, as readers of those commentators, because a lot of this documentation about people's responses to the Constitution was forwarded up to higher-level higher, higher level officials, um, this would be an interesting way to look at these materials. So that was one perspective. The other uh, came from this field in philosophy, the philosophy of language called speech act theory. And reading in this field, I discovered a very interesting concept called a aquisertion which is a combination of a question and an assertion together. And it occurred to me that when people were asking questions about the constitutions, they were not really always questions. Uh, rather, they were making statements via their questions. Uh, the, in other words, the question was a speech act. It was a, uh, a statement of perspective, of feeling, of point of view. Um, Uh, And when you looked at questions this way, not as mere questions, but as statements, it was pretty easy to find widespread critique um, of not only 1954 constitutions, but other constitutions as well. Um, So looking inductively uh, at how people reacted uh, struck me as a far more productive approach than uh, deducing what people uh, thought about the constitution from the text.
1: So this is something that came across throughout the book as each chapter often focused on a different group and trying to figure out what were they getting at, particularly through this idea, as you said, of using questions as assertion. So I think we're going to get into that during the interview, because that was a really interesting method of engagement that I'm glad we got a lot of detail about. Um, But first, I want to start with this idea of why did the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, have a constitution in the first place? Um, And you argue that although maybe some other scholars have talked about how this was about copying the USSR, actually, you argue that the CCP decided to create a constitution and go through this months-long, relatively public discussion in 1954 because it was related to guerrilla-style policymaking. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what you mean by this and how that impacts our understanding of the government's view of constitutions.
2: Yeah, so the term guerrilla-style policymaking uh, comes from a book um, edited by uh, Sebastian Hellman and my former advisor, uh, Elizabeth Perry, uh, in their book Mao's Invisible Hand, uh, which was published in 2011. And the question that they look at in that book is, how is it that the Chinese Communist power Party is still in power um, after all these years, despite multiple crises, despite the collapse of the USSR and communism in Eastern Europe? How did how did they do it? Um, and they uh, place a lot of emphasis on um, flexibility in policymaking. they call this guerrilla style uh, because they uh, argue that it comes from the historical experience of the Communist Party while it was conducting guerrilla warfare prior to the establishment of the state. So from from their perspective, guerrilla style policymaking emphasizes uh, flexible tactics, uh, exploiting weaknesses uh, in your enemies, uh, finding coalitions of convenience uh, with potential uh, allies, flexibility in policy implementation, uh, knowing who your friends are and who your enemies are. Um, And what this suggests is that the Communist Party has not been uh, uh, very stubborn uh, when it came to its uh, ideology, when it came to policies, it's been willing to experiment, to discard failed uh, uh, experiments. Um, And at the same time, it's also been quite ruthless in exploiting weaknesses Uh, that it it sees in its enemies, both domestic um, and international. And so from this perspective, uh, a constitution or constitutions generally are an extension of political warfare. Um, They were designed to intimidate enemies, uh, to keep people off balance, to confuse people, uh, to promise specific benefits to supporters, to demoralize enemies uh, in some cases, and when no longer necessary, a constitution can just be discarded. Uh, it's not something that the party has sort of been ideologically committed to um, as a matter of um, policy implementation or a, just a general perspective about the role of law uh, in, in society. So it's law, not so much as law per se, but law as an extension of political warfare.
1: That's a really Interesting way to think about it, and I think helps us understand a lot of the kind of different perspectives that we're dealing with than what we may be used to in Western law. So now that we have this idea of investigating how people spoke about the Constitution and especially how they asked questions about it and sort of what the government was trying to do with it, how it was related to other aspects of politics, um, I want to really get into. These different groups of people and how they responded and interpreted the Constitution. But to do that, we have to go back to the people that you mentioned already at the beginning who are not included, which was that the People's Liberation Army veterans and people marginalized. Um, in a lot of ways, this often included women. So, why do you think these two groups were not included in the discussion?
2: Yeah, this is uh, this has to be speculative because I haven't seen any documentation about about motives. Um, but I think there were two 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 problems. The first was logistical. Um, you know, the constitutional discussion was predicated on the ability to organize people. You know, you get people in rooms, uh, women in a room, workers in a room, uh, villagers in a room, businessmen in a room, uh, Muslims in a room, and so forth. And uh, there are officials there who can ask them questions and record those questions. Um, But I'm not sure that was possible for all groups. Uh, In particular, many veterans were on the move, 1952, 53, 54, moving from villages to cities. Um, Likewise, people displaced by natural disasters, uh, also uh, quite mobile. So from a logistical perspective, I think it was just hard to find these people and to get them organized in such a way that would enable a uh, you know, more or less stable environment to conduct um, a discussion about this, this, this document, the constitution. So that's one possible reason. The other um, might be that these are people who were very upset with what was happening uh, to them personally and to their families. Um, I wrote a great deal about veterans in uh, my book, In Battle of Glory, uh, many were quite bitter about how they had been treated. Um, after 1949, uh, many Korean War vet- veterans, um, um, POWs, were extremely unhappy um, with their situation. Um, and likewise, people who had suffered from uh, because of natural disasters were displaced and also um, less than happy with how they um, were were being treated. Uh, so I think for political reasons, uh, the Communist Party might have been reluctant to uh, give these people a, a, a forum um, in which they could basically complain uh, about, about their problems. And these complaints would, of course, be part of the official record. Um, so again, the, this is speculative. Um, uh, I wish I knew more, but um, we, we, I just don't have the documentation about that.
1: Well, let's go into the many, many documents that you do have from other groups that were included. Um, So in no particular order, um, what about the business community? What did they think about the draft constitution? How did they react? What does that tell us?
2: Yeah, a a major point I make um, in in discussing all of these groups was that people are approaching... Uh, the Constitution in 1954 and later in 19, 1982, through their political and social experiences in years prior to that. So they're not approaching 1954 as if it's an entirely new year and they're reading an entirely new document. So the business community uh, from 1949 on had suffered a great deal uh, uh at the hands of the Communist Party, with the exception of uh, several favored big capitalists, as they called them, who were given uh, preferential, exceptional uh, treatment. Uh, there was a campaign called uh, the Five Antis, uh, which specifically targeted their assets, um, their bank accounts. Um, likewise, during the marriage law campaign uh, 1950, 1953, uh, many were forced to divorce one of their many wives. Um, and so they approached the constitution and the constitutional discussion with a great deal of wariness and suspicion. Um, they really were not sure what what the Communist Party wanted them to get out of that, uh out of this discussion. And um and so their main emotions um were fear, anxiety and confusion and confusion. Uh, and the argument that I make in the book is that this was by design, um, that the Communist Party included specific words to sort of trigger these reactions. So, for example, they use the word xiaomie, which means eliminate um, or to get rid of, to abolish. And, of course, you know, if you are a person hearing this in the context of uh, 1954 Not long after the Communist Party executed landlords um, by the hundreds of thousands, um, many businessmen had been executed in the Five Antis campaign. And you read this word and you think, oh, uh, I'm probably next. Um, Or uh, they use the pronoun it, uh, ta, um, in reference to this population. And so businessmen thought to themselves, Why are they using this pronoun? Um, Does this mean that we're not people? We're not human? And of course, this process of dehumanization was something they were quite aware of by 1954 and worried that just as landlords had been executed in 50, 51, 52, they were sort of next in line. Um, They also felt extremely demoralized because the Communist Party was offering rights which they knew they would not get or not get easily. Uh, For example, um, the Constitution gave people the right to receive an education, but they were well aware in their everyday experiences that because they were capitalists, their children were being discriminated against. And so they thought, oh, this is is going to be a really big problem because we're being promised something uh, that the Communist Party knows that they can't follow through. So, what is the ultimate objective, right? What do they want to do with us? And this was, these feelings were 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 triggered by these words and concepts that were included in the constitution. So, the capitalists, so-called capitalists, are looking at the constitutions as readers of documents and are gathering data uh, from the text. And these and this data um, provokes them uh, to have these. Uh, very strong feelings of anxiety and fear, which is exactly what the Communist Party intended for them to have.
1: So why do you think the Communist Party intended them to have these reactions? What was the goal there?
2: Well, in, it's, in all Communist parties uh, around the world, the, the businessmen are, are enemies. Uh, with very few exceptions, do Communist parties look favorably upon the business class. Uh, they're perceived as exploiters uh, of workers, parasites, uh, people who had supported anti-communist causes uh, before the communists were able to achieve victory. So there was always a great deal of suspicion about them and worry about their ability to influence people, about their resources. And there was a determined effort uh, uh, to uh, keep them at bay, keep them at heel, uh, and to make sure that they did not they could not be a force behind some sort of counter-revolutionary uh, movement. Uh, and they used a number of strategies of uh, co-opting several of them, scaring others, confusing uh, uh, other groups. Uh, quite clever about it, actually. Uh, but it was a very determined and considered effort to uh, make sure that The business class could not constitute a a sort of oppositional force to them.
1: Given that the Communist Party in China, but also generally around the world, has a similar fear and view of religion, um, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about how the Constitution was received by religious and ethnic minorities.
2: Yeah, these groups were also seen with a great deal of suspicion uh, by the Communist Party um, for different reasons. Uh, Catholics uh, are loyal to the Pope. They're not loyal to uh, secular authority, particularly certainly not communist authority. Um, they had established uh, missions, uh, churches uh, in, in the 19th century, early part of the 20th century. Um, they were uh, said to be implicated in imperialism, and um, Protestants as well, but uh, not as, uh, they were not seen as antagonistic uh, to the communist project as Catholics were. Uh, And other groups, uh, because they had faiths that were non-communist, Muslims uh, in particular. Um, Tibetans were a concern, um, just like they are today. Um, People in Xinjiang, uh, because they spoke other languages, they were not uh, Han Chinese, Uh, excuse me. Um, and so the Communist Party made sure to intimidate these groups as well. And one of the ways they did this was by by promising religious freedom and a certain degree of autonomy. Now, you might think, isn't this a good thing? Um, promising religious groups, religious freedom, freedom of religious belief. But the thing is, all of these groups knew that that could not possibly be the case. That there was nothing in the Communist Party history, there was nothing in their prior pattern of behavior which suggested that they would follow through with allowing people to have freedom of religious belief. Um, and so they were suspicious. What is the Communist Party up to in making these promises that they absolutely cannot fulfill? And what happens during the course of the discussion is that uh, you have um, divisions within religious groups. Um, uh, elite, many elites saying um, maybe we should give them uh, some benefit of the doubt, uh, and others saying we absolutely cannot give them any credibility because of the way behave they behave towards us. Um, and so these promises cause divisions within these groups uh, between uh, elites and more lay. Believers, um, and causing internal dissension, d- dissension uh, was an extremely effective way of weakening them. Um, another uh, a key word in the discussion among these groups was reform, uh um, which was also a scary word because it's associated with land reform, which was, as everybody knew then, was quite violent. But the Communist Party basically said. If you promise to reform your religion, um, we can get along. Um, But this, again, prompted uh, internal dissension with pro-reform groups and anti-reform groups. Uh, Some Catholics said, you can't reform religion. You can't reform faith. While others said, well, maybe there are some practices that we can reform, and it's not such a big deal. And so what you see in the constitutional discussion is the creation of fear and anxiety and internal dissension within these groups, because they're arguing over the language uh, in the constitutional text and arriving at different conclusions about its meaning. And, of course, the intentions of the Communist Party, which were actually very hard to divine uh, uh, during these years.
0: Slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: I think the opacity of intent came through really clearly in this chapter, in particular on religious and ethnic minorities. And it offered a really great insight into the ways in which particular terms could both be really specific, but in that specificity, cause confusion to the readers. And so this comes up again in your chapter on popular constitutionalism, where you talk about these three different terms that were used and how citizens reacted differently and, and sometimes with confusion between what did it actually mean to be a citizen, a gongmin, a national, a guomin, or people, renmin. What, what actually were the differences? Um, this seemed to be a ripe area for confusion amongst laypeople. So I was wondering if you could explain a bit about what they were questioning there.
2: Right, right. Um, well, it was a source of confusion among lay people uh, and among officials. Uh, this this was a shared confusion uh, across class, across gender, um, uh, official, non-official. And the reason it was confusing was because, you know, many members of the Communist Party did not have very high levels of literacy. Um, many were young, uh, had never really spoken all that much about constitutions constitutional terms Uh, the word constitution itself is a borrowed term uh, from the japanese that's called a return borrowed word a borrowed loan word Uh, it is not a concept that that was discussed in everyday life Um, similarly uh, the concept uh, for citizen uh, gongmin uh, was not bandied about in everyday conversations. Uh, my colleague uh, in China, Feng uh, Tsai did research on these terms uh, and found that very few people used them or understood them. Um, what exactly is a citizen? Uh, what counts as a citizen? Do you have to be a certain age? Do you have to have a certain level of education? Um, likewise, national, uh, guomin is it an ethnicity? When you say a Chinese national, does this mean an ethnic Chinese? Um, the Nationalist Party had the exact same word, um, right? Uh, Guoming So what did it mean? Was it a bad thing uh, because, the, com, because the KMT had used this word? Uh, likewise, the concept people was explicitly political, but the boundaries of who was a person as far as the Communist Party was concerned and who was a non-person as far as they were concerned. And the concept for non-person is fair in me, right? But but these categories were always blurry and arbitrary and the communist party had a great deal of discretion putting people in either category. So when uh, the constitution said that citizens have rights, um, naturally you have hundreds of thousands of people who have been persecuted uh, for various political crimes, economic crimes, and they are not entirely sure whether they still count as citizens, even though they might think of themselves as nationals um, or even part of the people. And this confusion was extensively reported upon in the documentation and was well known to the leadership um, at that time. And I would say uh, I think it is true even today that there's uh, confusion about what these terms mean. And, you know, I would guess if you did a survey uh, in the United States uh, or the UK, what is the difference between a national and a citizen? Uh, you'll probably get many different answers because uh, they are, you know, confusing concepts. Um, but if you think about the Chinese population as You know, 75, 80 percent with very low levels of literacy. You can just imagine how this legal terminology uh, uh, heaped upon confusing political terminology, class based terminology. There's just a lot of confusion uh, about the basic vocabulary of the state, the basic vocabulary of law and the revolution.
1: And one thing that came through in particular was that, as you mentioned briefly, the confusion wasn't just among the lay people reading or having the constitution read to them. It was also amongst the officials who were often responsible for providing this education, even if they themselves didn't understand it that much more or even at all more than the people they were reading it to. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what officials said about the constitution in this period Um, particularly any differences amongst the officials, so police officers and security versus other kinds of officials? um, And generally, what did this kind of core group think about it?
2: Right. Well, I think that for non-security officials, the main response was indifference uh, and uh, apathy uh, for a very simple reason. Um, They made the argument that uh, law doesn't matter all that much. Uh, In China, the Communist Party matters the most. Uh, people matter more than law. Uh, and so there's no real point in learning about a constitution because in the end, the Communist Party does what it pleases and does not see itself as bound by a constitution or any other law. Um, another uh, very prominent response among officials was that a constitution was completely unnecessary because they had just defeated the the Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang, without a constitution, Uh, they defeated the Japanese from their perspective without a constitution. So it's not the sort of document that can help them perform what they considered to be their main role, which was conducting political revolution. Uh, One did not need a constitution to do this well. Of course, it turned out that in the end, constitutions did help them conduct revolution. Uh, but when they first encountered this document, many said there's really no point in studying it at all. Uh, and so there were complaints in many of these sessions about um, officials playing poker, reading books, making jokes, laughing at the people trying to teach them, uh, all sorts of reactions that suggested um, uh, 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 apathy on the border, bordering of, uh, of, of mockery. Police, on the other hand, uh were were a bit more anxious because they read this document that told them that they have to give people rights uh that people have a right to privacy people have uh, a right to move from one place to another to move their residence uh people have a right to free speech uh freedom of publication all sorts of things um And they were concerned that that at least some people would take this seriously. So if they went to arrest somebody, and this person had a relatively high level of education, they had read the Constitution, they would sort of whip out this document and say, hey, according to this document, you can't do that to me. And they would be tongue-tied. They would be flabbergasted uh, because how should they respond? It is the Constitution, after all. And it says that they have freedom of speech. So they were worried about people becoming uh, uppity um, um, in their face-to-face encounters uh, with uh, police as sort of low-level enforcers um, of, uh, of, of state control. Um, so, so that was one fear. Another fear was that they themselves could possibly get in trouble if they were found to have violated the constitution. So if the constitution um, said that they had to um, go through the prosecutor's office before making an arrest and they hadn't done this, this would be a mark on their record. It'd be a stain on their political performance and they can get in trouble for this. Now, The Communist Party wasn't necessarily unhappy with these sort of reactions. That is, it has always always been a problem for the Communist Party to control its own officials. So reading documents about policemen being afraid to behave in certain ways um, was actually a desired outcome because they wanted some way to intimidate, intimidate them. And if reading a constitution can help accomplish that objective, then all the better.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for explaining. Um, And on this topic of kind of the rights and what do we have to do in terms of rights and are we going to get in trouble? Something that readers might be surprised about is that the Chinese constitution has an entire section, section three, I believe, about political and socioeconomic rights, which might seem to some like a counterintuitive inclusion by the CCP. Um, given what we know of China today and also what China was like then. So can you expand a bit more on not just how everyday people responded to this section, which, as you've spoken about, ranged from confusion to indifference to that doesn't track with our experience, but also why do you think the government included it? Why was it beneficial to them to have this section if it wasn't necessarily going to be used?
2: Right. Right. Um, it is it is kind of curious uh, because they knew that people did not believe them. They knew that their own officials don't believe that people actually have these rights, um, and were suspicious. Right? Why are you offering things that um, cannot be implemented? But the trick in understanding this section is is first seeing that it's that it was not a standalone section like, you know, say the Bill of Rights. The chapter is called Rights and Obligations. And the argument that many officials made in 1954 and later after was that, hey, we are giving you rights, which means that you have to follow all of these obligations in the Constitution. So, uh, look, we give you freedom of speech. Well, that means that you... um, You have to pay your taxes. That means you have to serve in the military. That means you have to abide by uh, Communist Party morality. Um, And so so the the rhetoric about rights was always tethered to rhetoric about citizen obligations. We give you this, we we take this. Uh, And that is how many people understood it, uh, that the rights were not to be taken seriously and that they were basically a uh, a door through which the Communist Party could insist, even, sh- even e- with even more emphatic language, uh, that people had obligations to fulfill.
1: That's a very clear incentive then to include it. Um, and so you argue that the conventional wisdom, right, the useful bullshit side of things, is that Chinese constitutions are not respected by the Chinese government and maybe not by the people in China either. Um, The the bullshit element of the term, if you will. Um, But crucially, you do show that these constitutions are actually really useful, even if they're not believed as truthful um, or representing reality. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more moving on from 1954. How have successive governments found these constitutions to be useful And how have everyday people used them as well?
2: Right. Yeah, thanks. That's a really interesting and provocative question. Why, in the end, do they do this? Um, Well, you know, in China, like most authoritarian uh, governments, they have all the cards. Uh, They can write the constitution as they please. And then, I think, equally importantly, if not more importantly, they get to control... How the Constitution is talked about, they get to to determine how it is taught to people, um, and so the Constitution becomes just another weapon in their arsenal uh, of control, uh, political control, controlling discourse, controlling the way law is talked about, um, and um, so, for example. Um, There is, to this day, rights in the Constitution, right? But is it the case that when people are taught about the Constitution, um, they are encouraged to exercise their rights? Or, in contrast, are they taught that rights are dependent on obligations? Um, They can emphasize other elements in the Constitution, like discipline, observing public morality. Uh, These are constitutional duties. Uh, Or back in the day, uh, officials can say, uh, family planning, uh, you should observe it because it's in the constitution. Um, So in all of these cases, uh, officials get to determine what is written and what is talked about um, and the ideas that circulate uh, in the public. And these um, almost without exception emphasize conservatism. The the need to obey the law, the need to obey the party, Um, and even if you have rights, these rights uh, are always conjoined with citizen obligations. Mm -hmm. Now, what do people get? Uh, That's even more curious. Um, And I think, you know, what they get in the end is words. They get official words. And these words can be used, um, if the situation demands it, to sort of throw back at officials if the situation arises. Uh, So an official goes to arrest somebody and someone can say, hey, you shouldn't be doing this or you can't do this, you can't do this. And maybe that will give them some degree of pause, although it rarely works. But on occasion, uh, in the 50s and 60s, um, officials were just as confused by what the constitution allowed them to do so if someone said, hey, you can't do that, um, there were officials who said, huh, oh, maybe I can't do that. Maybe I'll get in trouble if I do it. So it could good it could give a moment of pause um, before an action was carried out. Um, and so, so looking at law as words and the constitution as words, I think it's a, a, a reflection of a larger strategy that people use when they try to apply law, which is, I have these words, and I will throw anything I can to try to get what I want. It could be policy, it could be the Constitution, it could be some other law, it could be a rumor, it could be some moral claim, some ethical uh, argument, and they hope that something will stick. Um, Even though it's hard to say what will, uh, there's certainly no predictability predictability in what will stick. But the overall approach is just to throw stuff. And the constitution gives a lot of words uh, to throw back at officials. And again, the the uh, whether this is effective or not is a separate story. I don't think the constitution works that way. Um, however, uh, it does give people some small degree of leverage or at least a feeling of satisfaction that they have the language with which to resist, um, even though this resistance is often futile from their perspective.
1: Thank you for explaining both sides of that. It really gives a good insight into why this document and these conversations are important to study, even if they don't seem to reflect reality in a way that we might be used to with other constitutions. Um, so I have a few final questions that I'm always curious about. And the first of which is, was there anything that was particularly surprising to you or anything you came across that really shocked you during the research process?
2: Um, I think what surprised me most is just how entrepreneurial people were when they asked for things to be included in the constitution. Um, You know when you go into a research project you don't expect about a constitution you don't expect that women will propose a constitutional clause um about preventing um young women from marrying old old codgers you know old men women should marry people their own age and not 50 60 year old men or suggesting constitutional articles that would prevent men from gambling, um, or other sorts of, or or um, building sports arenas. Um, you know, all sorts of things that you know strike us as very, very small. But from their perspective, if they could get it into the constitution, there'd be a better chance uh, of it happening. So, sort of that um, sort of entrepreneurial approach to getting what they want out of this document. Um, The other very surprising thing was just the extent of criticism and mockery um, in 1954, uh, which is two years before the conventional dating of widespread criticism of the Communist Party 1956, uh, with the Hundred Flowers campaign. (laughs) Um, So, so that was that was definitely a, um, a surprise. And lastly just the extent of anxiety and fear and confusion that existed. You know, we sort of assumed that people knew what the Communist Party was about by this point. People understood what they wanted. They understood the basic vocabulary. But as it turned out, um, 54, 55, 56, uh, I think there was still a great deal of uncertainty about what this state wanted, what its major objectives were, and how it would be implemented, uh, which is all that, not all that surprising. It's a very large population, um, not a very literate population during these years, a lot of confusing policies coming down back and forth. Um, so I think it presents a sort of realistic uh, understanding of how people understood um, the government and the Communist Party and its policies during these years.
1: Those are some good surprises, um, and definitely some that came out in the book as well. So I'm glad that it wasn't just readers like myself that were surprised to discover them. Um, <laughs> and for my last question, which always seems a little bit unfair, given that your book has just come out this year, um, but what are you working on now or next?
2: Uh, um, well, research-wise, actually not that much. Um, you know, Travel to China is pretty much impossible now. Um, research of the sort that I do uh, is extremely difficult. Um, and so I'm spending most of my time preparing new courses. You know, most of what I do at a uh, as a, a liberal arts college faculty um, is teach. That's our primary responsibility, actually. Um, research is secondary. Um, so. This post-book time I think, will be spent uh, improving <laughs> improving my pedagogy, uh, uh, introducing some new courses into, into the curriculum. And hopefully, you know in, the, in, in not too long, China will become a little bit a little more liberal uh, as far as uh, access to documents and things like this are concerned. But at the moment, I'm, I'm not particularly busy on, on the research front.
1: Well, I'm sure your students at least will benefit from your knowledge. And hopefully at some point in the future, you'll be able to continue your research and maybe write another book and maybe come back and share it with us. So thank (laughs) you very much for contributing your time and expertise. Um, I would really recommend this book to people interested in Chinese history, um, but also people interested in sort of legal documents and practice and how conversations around law happen, how everyday people think about law, whether or not you're interested in China. Um, I found this book to be really interesting and definitely learned a lot um, in a lot of different aspects. So thank you for writing this. And thank you for joining us on the podcast today.
2: Um, my, My pleasure. It was great talking with you.